1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. As attacks on strangers continue, we look at why our bail system continues to let repeat violent offenders roam our streets. And is it time government banned pet restrictions when it comes to rental housing? Plus, where's the competition? Does WestJet's takeover of Sunwing holidays mean trips to sunny climates are about to get more expensive? Plus, retail therapy. We look at our obsession with shopping. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Let's look at housing. It's difficult enough, to, of course, to find rental housing for people. Now imagine if you had pets. Well, we recently learned about a man in Surrey who's been living out of a U-Haul cargo van with his dog as he tries, desperately tries really, to find affordable pet-friendly housing. The man's name is Joe and And he says, of course, when he sleeps in that cargo van, nights are cold, but he doesn't really have a choice right now. And he lives in the van with his 11-year-old dog, uh, Wookley. Joining me now to talk a little bit about rentals and um, pet-friendly rentals is Victoria Shroff. She's an animal law lawyer. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jack. Uh Let's talk first and foremost uh, about this incident, uh, incident which is uh, really, once again, highlights the broader conversation we've been having. Uh, does this surprise you at all?
2: Um, well, it, it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's not surprising. But, you know, my take on this, uh, just a, a quick overview, is just as access to justice is supposed to be for everybody, we need to think about how pets serve a need for people in society. And these are often vulnerable or marginalized people, like Mr. Basaraba, those living in abject poverty. Um, And he has another overlapping uh, sphere. He has an illness. He has MS, according to the news story I saw. Mm -hmm. So, So we really need to recognize these spheres of overlap of people living in poverty and the immense comfort and relief they are provided through their connections with animals. Mm-hmm. and how that plays out in um, precarious housing or homelessness.
1: Now, right now in British Columbia, a landlord can decide if they want to have a renter that has a pet. They can decide whether or not that particular suite will allow pets.
2: That's correct, yes. yes. Landlords and stratas have the ability to make that decision on their own, whether or not they will permit pets. They can also restrict the size, the kind, and the number of pets. Um, and then that gets worked out with the um, with the individual tenants, um, you know. It, so it's a it's a case by case basis, but the landlord is in the driver's seat. Uh,
1: how many other jurisdictions do what British Columbia does?
2: Uh, most it's uh, it's that's that's the majority across Canada uh, where we have um, landlords have the ability to deny. Pet.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, renters. Yeah. I mean, if I were to speak to a, a landlord group, they would say, first and foremost, look, the wear and tear on a property, uh, right. we should we have the right to whether or not we want an animal in our home, there could be allergies, whatever it may be, we should have the right uh, with property that we own to decide whether pets uh, should reside in that uh, rental property. Uh, there are those, of course, who would agree with disagree with that. Um, is that not a fair argument on the part of 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 uh, of uh, owners?
2: Well, I think, I think owners need to sort of expand the, the scope of what they're looking at, because I think statistics have shown us that people who have pets and who become tenants stay a lot longer than people who don't have pets. Um, so there's, there's more stability. So that means less turnover. And that can be a very good thing for a landlord who's, who's looking for, you know, to keep their rental property occupied and to have a, a steady rental income. Um, So so that's important, Um, you know, because it takes time and money to find new tenants and reliable tenants. And apparently, I have seen statistics that the uh, BCFPCA has released that there's really apparently not much of a significant difference in in damage between tenants um, with pets and those without pets. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think that's one of the often cited things that... You know this this animal is going to destroy everything in sight, and I don't I don't really
1: think that's the case. Mm-hmm. And I know the SPCA in the past have publicly advocated for the changing of rental uh, rules uh, because they get many animals returned to them or left with them because people are, are not able to find uh, accommodations for themselves. Certainly, uh, they aren't able to find accommodations that are are pet friendly. Uh, what do you say to the argument? Some would say, look, um, the onus actually should be turned upside down, and landlords shouldn't be able to say. No pets. Uh, renters should uh, all rent rental property should include uh, uh, pets, and it should be flipped. And the default position should be that the, the landlord has to justify why a pet can't uh, reside in that property.
2: Right. That's that's one argument I've seen. I, I think there's actually some. At first, I just like to agree with you. Um, what you said about um, the number one reason for pet abandonment and surrender is because people cannot find of uh, uh, pet-friendly rental. So that, that's absolutely true. Um, but there's, I think there's some potential solutions on the horizon. Um, for example, in England, uh, they've taken steps to address the issue. And people living in rented homes can be allowed to keep what's called, quote-unquote, well-behaved pets. And these new measures um, were announced by their government in January 2021. Mm-hmm. And it basically says, you know, it's like a model tenancy agreement. Um, and, you know, it sort of says, you know, my dog can do these things or my cat can do these things and, you know, is um, is going to be on side with, with being kind of a, a good canine or feline citizen. And so you see that there are ways of maybe coming to a middle ground um, so that we don't have, uh, you know, shelters right now are bursting at the seams with people who have uh, returned animals. And, and some of them can't afford food uh so fortunately we do have some pet food banks but you know that's that's not enough to fill the the hunger needs
1: um so how do you How do you define good behavior i mean I, I I can actually it seems like you're opening up a can of worms and someone says, yeah. "Well, my dog is good uh, is is a good dog and and that of course depends on on what the landlord may say or the tenant may say I mean you could have a great dog, but the dog likes barking a lot in the evenings when somebody may be a sh- the landlord might be a shift worker and needs to be sleeping, so doesn't that open up a, can, a different can of worms when you start debating what is a good animal?"
2: Well, I think that there's a very easy way around it, and I was suggesting that it would come from the, from the, the, the prospective tenant themselves, but also maybe a letter from the veterinarian saying, you know, this person, this person is very responsible, they're up to date on their vaccines and all their other health requirements, and this dog has been generally well-behaved. Um, is not a fearful dog and, and can actually kind of give a bit of an outline as to the dog's personality and behavioral problems, mm-hmm. if there are any, and what's being done to curb them if, if they exist. So I think not just relying on what the tenant says, maybe if they have that extra letter, kind of like a reference letter.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you and I, as we were talking about pets, generally what that would mean is a dog or, or a cat, as you said in, in, in your uh, definition there. But once you allow this to happen, does does not open the door for a small minority of people to say, you know what? I like snakes or I like rabbits or whatever it may be. Um, does that not o- open up another can of worms in regards to what you define as a pet?
2: Well, yeah, I'd say I'd say definitely I would call I would call rabbits uh, an acceptable pet as well. They're the third most popular pet, as a matter of fact. Now, snakes and other exotic animals—that definitely is a can of worms um, <laughs> uh, because it is it is absolute cruelty to have exotic pets like that in any kind of um captivity and unfortunately it's it's an enormous problem particularly in ontario they have a they have they have a terrible time with it because the laws there are not structured to very clearly advise um, people what they can and can't have they actually have big cats i.e lions and tigers in people's basements in ontario that is not, not actually not a joke Wow. So, so, so that's the, the captive animal issue, um, particularly for exotics, is, is live and well. And, and, and exotics should never be pets. I say they don't, uh, there's no such thing as an exotic pet. A snake is not a pet.
1: Is there so, any, any jurisdiction that does this well that where you're able to have a pet in a rental property and it seems to work for landlords and for tenants?
2: Well, Ontario's sort of been having this, this law in place for some time now, and it seems to work somewhat, I will say. Um, I think that it's, it's kind of been held up as, as a model for other places in Canada to look to, because they've been doing this for some years. Um, you know, and I think I think, like I said before, examining some of the benefits of having pet friendly housing and, and seeing that, you know, for example, it might provide a little bit of extra security on the property. Um, and and the general idea, in my view, as an animal lawyer, is that having a companion animal is, is an asset to the people and the people around, um, you know, just because it creates, it creates a lot of comfort and happiness. And I think, you know, we're we're talking about mental health outcomes, and and people do better who have pets mm-hmm. than who don't.
1: Well, there's lots of airline news uh, these days over the last uh, week or so. uh, We heard a New uh, York-based hedge fund uh, recently seized uh, four of Flair Airlines' planes uh, over the weekend, which has resulted in, of course, a number of canceled flights. Uh, The low-cost airline said it was working towards rebooking customers or reimbursing them. But the cancellation, get this, left as many as 1,300 passengers stranded and, of course, very frustrated. Earlier Today, our Jill Bennett spoke to Leanne Caldwell. She is a BC resident stranded in Tucson, Arizona, due to uh, the Seas Planes Flair Airlines Seas Planes. She spoke to Jill, and here's what she had to say.
0: So we went back to the check-in counter. The employees there had very little to offer. They gave us a phone number to call to make arrangements for hotel that Flair would cover and they had no other information aside from that. They, they put some crackers and some bottled water on the counter and their hands were tied.
1: Well, that's what happens when uh, four of your planes are seized by a hedge fund. Uh, there seems to be a lot of competition out there. You've heard of Port Airlines coming out to British Columbia and others uh, as well. But uh, in some ways, you're seeing some competition. In other ways, there's actually a contraction uh, in the industry. Uh, on Friday, we learned that the federal government said it would approve WestJet Airlines' takeover of Sunwing Airlines. The government said they want to stabilize the airline sector uh, and want to still support the 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 Toronto-based travel company. Now, Sunwing, of course, is known for offering package travel deals to Mexico and the Caribbean. But essentially, WestJet will take over Sunwing Airlines, uh, and by by being given that green light, there are some conditions that are imposed on uh, WestJet, which includes uh, job growth and capacity reservation issues. The merged companies must also maintain uh, offices in Toronto and Montreal for five years. But what does this mean for you here in the Lower Mainland or in British Columbia, if you want to go for a quick trip to Mexico in the Caribbean over the next few years? What's this mean to your bottom line? Joining me to talk about uh, this merger is Claire Newell, president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Clara, thank you for joining us today.
0: Oh, my pleasure, Jazz. Lots going on, and this is such big news.
1: It is, absolutely. First of all, when you heard about the WestJet takeover of Sunwing, do you view this as a positive for consumers?
0: So I heard that this deal was announced a year ago, and it never sat well with me, Jazz, just because of the fact that there's not a lot of competition, particularly in the West. Still doesn't feel good from a consumer standpoint.
1: What specifically don't you like?
0: Well, I think, you no. Know, surprise. I mean, the Competition Bureau flagged this for a reason, and it's because of the fact that it was going to prevent competition. Essentially, West Ship Vacations and Sunwing do the same thing. They package vacations, combining air and resort stays in Mexico and the Caribbean. And the Competition Bureau itself actually found that there was going to be 31 routes where that by the merger of these two, it would lessen or prevent competition. And in fact, on 16 of those routes, Jazz, that WestJet would gain a monopoly. So where I stand, um, you know, I have two hats as a consumer and as a person in business. And um, from a business perspective, the last thing we want is one of these companies to go under. That really affects the competition. But from a consumer standpoint, taking uh, a competitor out of the marketplace, even with the stipulations that the Minister of Transport has put in play. We can talk about those in a minute. We only in the West have Air Canada vacations, WestJet vacations, and in, at times you can uh, use Swoop Air with those packages since they are sister companies, and you have Sunwing.
3: Hmm.
0: And so knocking those out, one of them out of the, the marketplace, uh, would would be really... Detrimental. When I first got in the business, mm-hmm. there was so many players. There was, and you might remember some of these. I mean, anyone around my age might. Um, but Fiesta West, Silverwing, you remember that? I need a vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, Canada three thousand, Transat Holidays, which hasn't been in the marketplace for about three years now. Fun some vacations. I mean, there were there were a number, and there were others that came and went. But um, now having three. Not great news for us sitting here in the West Coast.
1: In a post-COVID environment and with what's transpired now, is it fair to say we should expect higher prices for flights and packaged travel like this in the year's ahead? Not just because of this particular merger that's gone ahead, but generally people in the airline industry are saying right. get used to higher airline prices.
0: Yeah, at least for the for the next at least year, if not longer, just because of the fact that there are Um, fewer staff the shortages in the the number of pilots and crew uh, even navcan. everyone who works at the airport those those positions still need to be filled and because of that not all of the flights that we had um, pre-pandemic are in the marketplace so and there's so much demand people really really want to travel and if you've looked into travel especially outside of Canada it's expensive there's no question about that but they're flying at rates that are going to keep those airlines sustainable Mm -hmm. whereas right now in the domestic market things have not been well and you and i've chatted about this in in the recent past is that there are too many domestic carriers right now and because of that we're seeing you know air canada shift a little bit more to the east and WestJet shift a little more to the west and as these other low cost carriers in the marketplace are trying to carve out their place. You know, I I do hope that some of the players that are that are in the marketplace post pandemic, the newer players that you, you may have heard, um, these are doing domestic routes right now, but they are, their intention is to do sun destinations. Unfortunately, most of them are starting their sun destinations from the East coast, mainly Toronto. So we're not seeing them here. But post-pandemic, whether it's in the domestic market or slowly moving to the south, companies like Canada Jetlines, Lynx, Porter, Flair, all of which we really didn't didn't have pre-pandemic.
1: Hmm. Now, part of the conditions that were uh, uh, imposed, I guess, on uh, WestJet in this deal is to phase out Sunwing seasonal aircraft leasing program. There's lots of others. Uh, they have to extend Sunwing yeah. vacation packages to five more Canadian cities. Uh, boost employment at the Toronto office by 20% over three years. There's a few others. And generally, does this, I mean, at the end of the day, if I'm sitting here in Vancouver, Victoria, Nanaimo, Kelowna, are we going to see just less flights, which is going to drive up further costs uh, as well?
0: Well, hopefully not for at least the five years that these stipulations are put in place. So let's talk about some of these, um, you know, the strings that have been attached by the transport minister. So one of them is that they have to have five new cities. The reality of that is they just canceled out of some and canceled, as we all know, all these flights out of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and the Maritimes adding five new cities is just getting them back to partial of what they had to six months ago. The other thing is, is that they said that they have to maintain the offices in Toronto and Montreal for at least the next five years. Well, if you're in business, you know that it takes at least five years to wrap up leases and that type of thing. And as far as growing, um, the Sunwing office by at least 20%. Every business in the travel industry right now needs 20% more staff. So to me, it's, you know, their conditions, are they hard to meet? No. Uh,
1: a year from now, if I'm wanting to go to Mexico, can I expect to be probably paying more than what I'm paying today?
0: Uh, at least the same and, and maybe a bit more. The reality is, is that I used to give deals. Jazz, you would probably remember some of the t- deals that I would offer to, Puerto Vallarta and the Riviera mm-hmm. Maya, and and they were six ninety nine, seven ninety nine, eight ninety nine plus taxes going to Mexico to an all inclusive. Those days are gone. I mean, there's any time I see something sitting around the thousand dollar mark. I mean, the lowest I've seen was nine nineteen, and I think it was Puerto Vallarta leaving sometime in. June, like there just hasn 't been post pandemic those types of deals, so i 'm telling people, especially if they want to go over long weekends or over holidays like spring break or winter break, start planning those well in advance because what we 're seeing is them sell out before they ever go on sale, and when they kind of go on sale it 's nothing like what we had before the pandemic
1: well here 's the competition. I hope it uh, arrives back to the airline industry I know it's on the domestic side it's there, but those trips to the Caribbean and, and Mexico and Hawaii are very important for those of us, especially this winter here yeah. in Vancouver, that's for sure. You better believe it. Absolutely. Claire, thanks for your time.
0: Thanks,
3: Jazz. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: Today we learned Canada's banking regulator has temporarily seized the assets of Silicon Valley Bank's loan Canadian branch, After the financial institution collapsed um, uh, on Friday, uh, U.S. banking regulators on Friday uh, were forced to to urgently close the uh, California bank after billions of dollars were withdrawn by fearful depositors. Now, there are fears other banks could face similar difficulties, but today U.S. President Joe Biden stressed that Americans can have confidence in the U.S. banking system. Take a listen.
4: Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well.
1: Now, of course, uh, what is happening to Silicon Valley branch is, of course, happening in the context of a high interest rate environment and, of course, a high inflationary period as well. Recently, the Globe and Mail reported that CIBC, our own CIBC, the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, showed that $52 billion worth of mortgages, which is equivalent to about 20% of the bank's $260 billion residential loan portfolio, that's 20%, were in a position where the borrower's monthly payment was not high enough to cover even the interest portion of the loan. So uh, this issue in the Silicon Valley uh, Bank is not uh, isolated. It's happening in the context of broader uh, fiscal challenges, not only for our broader economy, but for the average homeowner uh, as well. Uh, Time now to talk to our financial uh, advisor and business analyst on this issue. Uh, And there's no one better than Michael Levy who joins us now. Michael, thank you for speaking to us today.
4: Thanks, Jazz. Nice to be with you.
1: Yeah, a lot going on as I was coming into work today, listening to all these stories. I said I've got to give Michael a call because uh, there's a, you know different stories in the U.S. and here as well. So it's good to talk about all of these issues. First and foremost, what is the impact of the Silicon Valley bank collapse in the U.S.? Will there be repercussions or any potential repercussions here in Canada?
4: No, there won't, Jazz. And the one uh, branch you were talking about is not a deposit-taking branch. It was just a branch, a Canadian branch, of the American Bank, but not for regular public use. So the fact is that's been closed down also by regulators here, but it will have little to no – well, not, not not even little. It will have no impact on Canadian banking whatsoever.
1: How can this happen in 2023? I mean, we've gone through this with, with uh, you know, uh, Lehman Brothers, and it's, it's a little different than Silicon Valley bank, bank, and I understand that. But how can how why is this happening now?
4: Uh, Jazz, it's basically mismanagement. Um, uh, they took their deposits, and the deposits just don't sit in the bank and do nothing. So the bank puts them out in what they would consider ultra-safe investments, like buying U.S treasury instruments bonds or t-bills but the fact is they also have some risk involved and we've seen that uh, uh overtake the banking industry well industry on its own and the banking system so if you go out a year ago and buy a uh, two or five year United States Treasury bond. And it's paying 3% interest. So what you're doing is you're taking your customers money, putting it in the safest asset there is, that's U.S. treasuries, and uh, you hold a portion of your portfolio on that until it's needed. And you, the bank, earn on those deposits. They also uh, uh, take money that you put in your account here in Canada and they do uh investments with them but these were not safe investments in a high interest rate environment where rates were going higher so let me just picture this for you uh you take in customers money and you put it out at three percent in the safest instrument u.s treasury bond and when you go to cash it in because you have to give the customer you you have to make the customer whole because they a want to pay bills or pay payrolls or they want to take their money out of the bank and the interest rate on the 5 year notes now is 5%. Well nobody wants to buy that from you because it's only paying 3%. So what happens? Mm-hmm. You've got to discount it below face value in order to be competitive in the marketplace. So instead of getting $100 for a $100 bond, you might get 97.50. Well, just take that and explode it out which is what happened, and uh, SVB, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, could not meet their obligations. The minute that got out, every depositor, every company, every high-tech company that was doing business with them started a stampede on the bank wanting to get money out, and that happened midweek last week, and then the regulators came in and said, We can't do this. This can't happen. So they closed the bank and basically closed the bank. Now, there were two kinds of depositors. There's your normal, everyday you and me who put our money in the bank. Mm -hmm. Well, federal deposit insurance in the United States covered everybody up to a quarter of a million dollars. So there's no retail client that got hurt or burned. But the bigger, the startups, the, 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 the Silicon Valley companies that were banking with them well theirs were not and are not covered so then we have to look for somebody else to step up to the plate otherwise this becomes a problem that not only for the uh um depositors and investors in silicon valley bank but it starts to spread like a disease for which there is absolutely no stopping it unless the federal government
1: steps in um in this case, uh, this has obviously made international news um, for the average um, consumer who is concerned about high interest rates. We can get to that in the next segment. But just in regards to interest rates themselves, does this, what does this tell the, the, the U.S. Fed or, or even the Bank of Canada here? I mean, does this put any pressure on them to just hold where they're at? Perhaps some of them are in, you know, in the U.S. perhaps considering another rate increase. Uh, what does this mean in regards to that issue?
4: That's the prescient question, Jazz, and you've nailed it. What the Fed was doing, in my opinion, and I've held this opinion for quite a while now, was too much, too fast. We're in Canada. It's a different. It, 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 it's a different outlook. Uh, Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, said we're going to raise rates. We're going to do it slowly. We're going to pause. We're going to see how we raised rates and what the effect that was. We're going to give it time to work through the system. Jay Powell, the, uh, the the head of the U.S. Federal Reserve, said as early as last week, we're going to keep raising rates and we're going to raise them till we get inflation to turn around. And and uh, we are going to do 25 basis points. We'll do 50 basis points if we have to. That turned on a dime this weekend. You're going to see the U.S. Fed not stop raising rates, but back off and say, uh, j- just just take a breath and let things start to normalize out there. And that's not going to happen overnight. <laughs>
1: Um, what impact do you think this is going to have on the tech sector? I mean, this is a Silicon Valley bank. As you said, startups are reliant on it. Other um, uh, bigger uh, customers, business customers are reliant on it. I mean, does this impact the ability just to even raise money or just for a moment, uh, a, a pause to that industry as well?
4: It'll be more than a moment, and you're absolutely correct. It is going to be tougher for them to get that kind of venture capitalist uh, capital, uh, because people are going to be Um, gun-shy. They're going to be gun-shy about giving the money to a venture capitalist or a tech company that's going to put money in one of the smaller banks. I mean, just stop and think for a minute. Uh, um, a Silicon Valley bank was worth 212 billion dollars. That was the worth of the bank. And you take a look at J.P. Morgan Chase, and they're up 2.3. And I could be wrong. It might be even a little more trillion. Dollars. So your regular banking industry did not really even get hit badly today. They got hit, but not badly. And here in Canada, Canadian banks were down 2%. No big deal. That's just another day at the office for Canadian banks.
1: Uh, Michael, let's focus a little bit on um, things closer to home, specifically people and their mortgage payments. Uh, interesting article just a couple weeks ago in the Globe and Mail, which I don't think got as much play as it should have. CIBC, in a little footnote in one of their reports, said it showed that they had $52 billion worth of mortgages here in Canada. That's the equivalent of 20% of all their residential mortgages in this country. So for CIBC, I mean, one of our major banks, they said that 20% of those mortgages were in a position where the borrowers monthly payment was not high enough to cover even the interest portion of the loans and this is a, a footnote in a in a report and there's many other uh, of our major banks that don't actually mention anything like this uh first and foremost did that that number surprise you yep simply
4: yes it did um they have a $263 billion mortgage portfolio, $52 per, uh, billion dollars of that, of those are underwater. Now this is going to be, these are going to be mortgages basically that are, are variable rate mortgages, Jazz. That is, you go out and you get a variable rate. And when you do that, in normal times, you will get a rate that's less than the fixed rate. And when you do it, they'll assign a certain amount to the interest and a certain amount to paying off the principal. As in interest rates go up, they're going to use more of the money that you have for uh, the interest and less for principal until we get to a point where, uh-oh, all your money is being used up to pay the interest, nothing going on principal, and then they have a trigger clause, and uh, that trigger clause is, uh, we can start coming back after you and ask you to give us more money the other thing would be is if your property is valued well enough then they just uh get more and more attachment to your property uh that would be the collateral but basically the bank of commerce is um uh uh, 20 underwater we do not know what the other banks are but they look at it a little differently than cibc but let me just say right now is none of the canadian banks are in any kind of mortgage trouble whatsoever they're still doing businesses they're still writing mortgages it's just that cibc is just approaching it a little differently and they are underwater at 20 percent and that's significant
1: yeah i mean and to my understanding the toronto dominion bank and the bank of montreal also offer similar products that allow mortgages to negatively amortize. Uh, I, I if, and I, I agree with you. I think there's, our banking system is still uh, safe and and uh, and nothing to do or compared to what's happening in the United States. But you know, do you have any sense of what? all of this is doing to the average consumer. I'm basing this on just calls you get from people, things that you hear anecdotally. Uh, I just cannot believe that there has to be tremendous impact on people right now. We're probably not hearing it or seeing it as much as we probably need to, but it is quite concerning when the even the CIBC Bank is releasing that type of information. It really gives you... Just a brief glimmer in regards to the challenges that people have before them uh, with this high interest rate environment or very quick uh, raise in interest rates.
4: Looking at it that way, yes, there are people, there are people that I know personally whose mortgages are underwater and they've come to them to say, we want the differential. Straight out. So if the differential is $200 a month because your uh, mortgage interest will not be uh, carried by the rate that you're paying, then these people have been asked for money. Well, nobody's in trouble here because the underlying asset is worth a heck of a lot more, and I mean a heck of a lot more, that being the house, than what you owe on it. But uh, it does give people pause to reflect. But again, we have, uh, Jazz, this reminds me of interviews we did in 2009, 2010, and asking the same questions. We have the safest banking system in the world is right here in Canada. One of the reasons is there's only six big banks in this country and very, very few small regional banks where in the United States there are thousands of small banks, literally thousands of small banks. Mm -hmm. They have to be a lot more worried than we are here.
1: No, absolutely. But I just see that. number. Maybe it's because the information like this usually isn't, uh, isn't offered and publicized like it is in this case with CIBC. See, generally, yeah. banks keep that, um, you know, when they have to disclose, they will. But generally, you don't hear about that type of information at all. So it got my attention when I saw it a couple of weeks ago, that's for sure.
4: Well, as you know where the uh, information is, every quarter, if you look at what the banks put aside for loan losses, that money for mortgages that are underwater will be included. So when a bank says we've put away $253 million this quarter for possible loan losses, those mortgages that are underwater are included in that number.
1: Michael, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Jazz. On Friday, uh, a vape and tobacco store on Spice Street in downtown Vancouver was hit. Uh, hard after the owner says two suspects stole thousands of dollars in merchandise and cash. The robbery occurred at Knife Point uh, on broad daylight on a Friday morning. It was caught on surveillance video, and there's been a significant amount of coverage over the last few days. The store's owner, Armugan Tahir, says the robbers took over $7,000 worth of merchant, merchandise and cash. Uh, Mr. Tahir spoke to our colleague Mike Smith this morning in regards to the incident. Take a listen. Before it wasn't the robberies that this kind of a robbery is not like before it was just a panic theft, like just a break in panic theft. Somebody just like took the merch- one merchandise and went away. Like there was no weapon use or nothing. There was no use of force. But this kind of a robbery is not like in the, this is maybe in the Hastings area is common. It's not even common there, but it's entertainment district.
5: No, these kids are just like maybe 22, 23. You can see their ups. Like they're not old guys, you know, like yeah the young people.
1: Now uh, I want to uh, uh, reiterate here: we do not know who these individuals were, whether or not uh, are there are any bail conditions or any of that sort. But th- this does add to the broader perception and conversation that there aren't enough repercussions for people involved in this r- this type of random crime. Uh, and critics have referred to our bail system as catcher and, and release. Our critics and some members of the opposition as well. Well, the BC government has been outlining what it hopes to see when the federal government makes adjustments to the country's bail system. Uh, uh, this spring. And want want, I do want to reiterate that the criminal code is under the control of the federal government uh, with those changes coming, as, I, as I've said. Now, as I also reiterated here, the opposition and many other critics have said this is more of a catch and release system. and We need to do better. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the system and, and what kind of changes BC would like to see is Nikki Sharma, the province's attorney general. Minister Sharma, thank you for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: It's always great to be on the show. Uh, There's lots to talk about here, uh, and I've highlighted this issue that occurred uh, in Vancouver on Friday. There was another um, uh, shooting uh, yesterday. I'm not going to ask you to comment on any of those specific incidents. Those are before the police and and will be before the Crown as well. But it does add to the broader perception that there are not enough repercussions with our uh, justice system, not enough accountability, and there's been a lot of focus on the bail system itself. Uh, What kind of changes would you Like to see?
5: Yeah, I just want to start by saying that I'm sure when everybody hears about these stories and those people involved in it, it's very traumatizing and it's horrifying, right, to think about the violence and the trauma that comes from those incidents. And we as a government understand that communities across the province have been um, wanting to feel more safe and, and understand what tools we have to be strengthened to help with that. And so we've been hard at work on that. And part of that solution was. Um, advocating to the federal government for bail reform. What we've seen is that there were recent changes to bail policy in light of some Supreme Court decisions that had some unintended consequences in terms of particularly repeat violent offenders. So what we asked for and got an agreement on with the federal government was for changes that said, look, if you commit violence with a weapon, and, and you should be held unless there's a good reason to release you. So these people are kept off the streets. Um, we heard a commitment from the federal government that they will be making. They intend to make those changes to the bill policy as early as this spring. So we're hopefully, hopefully our advocacy will pay off.
1: Uh, is this an issue that you are seeing other attorney generals across this province have been articulating to the federal government?
5: Yeah, so BC really led the charge a few months ago, but what we found when we asked um, the federal government for changes is that actually provinces across the country were seeing similar things, and it's showing up in different ways. Like in Manitoba, it's with bear spray that they were seeing being used um, in attacks in Ontario. They, they were raising concerns about gun violence. And in BC, I think what we've seen is uh, definitely bladed weapons and, and random attacks from strangers. And so we... All had um, this this rise in concern over this this community safety, but for different aspects of it. so we were able to actually come together despite our political stripes and say a very send a very clear message to the federal government that we need to look at these the bail policy and get an agreement from them for bail reform. so it was really um, it was really effective for all of us to agree. And I think that uh, hopefully with these changes, we'll be able to have better tools in the justice system to prevent violence on the street.
1: Do you think this alone will change people's perceptions about safety in, in Vancouver? Uh, we, as I said, Nanaimo is dealing with these issues. It's throughout our province, around the country. Uh, is this the only thing that, or, or the main thing that's going to actually help us deal with this issue? Or are there more things you're looking at?
5: Yeah, there's plenty more. So we didn't wait around for the federal government to make changes. We started um, investing in the services we know we need to see in the province. So we have a a safer communities action plan that has many different parts of whether it's mental health supports, whether it's using um, health responses to people that maybe need mental health support rather than the police. It's um, starting up a repeat uh, violent offenders task force that's under my ministry and the Ministry of Attorney General. So it's Crown Council working together with police and probation officers to cut through silos and really circle around what we're hearing is a smaller group of people that are repeatedly causing violence um, in their communities. So we think that um, by doing that, we're strengthening up the justice system in BC to respond to this. And we know it's not one tool that's going to solve it. It's going to be a comprehensive approach and we're investing in that. Minister Farnworth announced recently $230 million investment in RCMP across this province. So it's really every aspect of the system that we're investing in and
1: community groups. I recently met, not recently, but six months ago, I met met a retailer, uh, an individual who worked for a retailer on Robson Street, and he would often tell me, he was telling me that the, the repeat offenders that would actually come back into their store and then just work their way down Robson and to the point where stores are talking to each other, managers have to talk to each other, and it's always a small amount of people. Um, Does your ministry understand, beyond talking with Ottawa, beyond these programs that you've articulated to me, that people are fundamentally just fed up of giving up the streets to these individuals, and I understand they're dealing with mental health and addiction challenges and all of that, but the general public also are just fed up, and there is somewhere along the way uh, a turning point for them as well, that they do want law and order, that they want accountability, and those that do um, commit these crimes, yes, there should be uh, compassion, but if you commit the crime, you should also uh, be, um, be full, actually fully understand there are repercussions for that. There appears to be, certainly the public's view is, there are not enough repercussions for people's actions, and that is a fundamental issue. It's not a compassion issue, it's accountability and repercussions. We don't instill enough of that in the system.
5: Yeah, I mean, we hear people, and I meet with um, with businesses and, and city councils and town councils since in the, being in this job, and I've certainly heard the frustration out there. But that's why. Not only did we advocate and hopefully very successfully make changes to the bail policy federally to say we need we need to strengthen that to keep our streets safe. We're investing in programs that are about circling around this group of these groups of people that seem to be small in a lot of communities in terms of numbers, but causing huge impacts. And try to bring not only accountability for their actual criminal actions, but also the system investments in place to, to respond to them. So we're, we're taking action on many fronts because we hear people, right, that this is frustrating. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, there's been a rise in cities and towns across the country and the globe when it comes to this stuff. And COVID had a lot of um, negative impacts on people, um, particularly those people that um, were on the margins. And so we have to continue to support um, changes in community on every level with that. And we're, we're taking action, and we'll continue to do that.
1: Uh, and just want to clarify, when can we expect those uh, changes? I know it just says spring. Do we have a, have a more of a clear idea or a date?
5: Um, well, that was the commitment that we received um, from the federal minister. Minister Lametti mentioned that he has to have follow parliamentary procedures and speak with his cabinet, which is, of course, what we would expect him to have to do. But the, the, what he was able to commit to was as early as this spring, if, if everything... Um, goes as planned. So we're hopeful that those changes will come quickly.
1: Minister, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it.
5: That was great to be on the show. Thank you. Take care.
1: One man is in hospital with a gunshot wound after trying to retrieve stolen property from a homeless encampment In downtown Nanaimo, the incident occurred on Sunday around 3.30 when Monty's recalled reports of an argument at a park uh, in the community. Uh, Responding officers found six people in a nearby parking lot, including one man who had been shot. Uh, Paramedics transported the victim to hospital. We are told he is in stable condition at this particular point. Uh, It is a huge issue of concern for any community, but particularly, of course, this incident occurring in Nanaimo. Joining me now is Colin Middleton. He is an interim chair of the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association. Uh, Colin, thank you for joining us today.
3: Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh,
1: The reaction from your community to this this incident uh, that had occurred over the weekend, what are you hearing?
3: Well, I think, uh, for the most part, that there's a feeling of inevitability that this was going to happen at some point. And also, uh, sh- shock and anger that it had come to this, and um, obviously people are really concerned for uh, the victim's well-being and family and hope for a full recovery.
1: Uh, have you heard any information in regards to what had transpired in regards to this individual, this local man going to a homeless encampment? Was it uh, stolen tools to my understanding?
3: Yeah. My understanding is that it was uh tools of the trade. He, he runs a, uh, a local uh, auto repair shop. Mm-hmm. And, um, my understanding that the, the item in question was a, um, uh, engine hoist. Um, and, uh, it was identified, and um, you know he he and some neighbors that are community volunteers who um, frequently uh, do cleanups of of homeless encampments um, were there to, um, to to retrieve stolen property on public
1: property uh, do you know if this individual's had to deal with vandalism before at his business?
3: Uh, yes, my understanding is that there's been uh, um, he has, a, um, he's long been dealing with, uh, small, like petty theft, vandalism, um, you know, as running the running a, a business of this nature in this part of Nanaimo, um, there, there have been issues with, um, people breaking into the compound and damaging vehicles and stealing parts from vehicles and so on, and so on. So yeah, he's, um, he, he certainly has, uh, Ha- had uh, a lot to to deal with when it comes to um, these kinds of thefts. Uh,
1: we spend so much of our time here uh, in Vancouver, of course, looking at this region, the issues of mm-hmm. random violence. So can you give people a, um, a sense of what it is like in Nanaimo in regards to homeless encampments, uh, those challenged by mental health and addiction as well? What's it? What is it like in your city in regards to dealing with those broad issues?
3: Well, I I would say to all of your listeners that um, the issues are the same. And, in fact, you know, our group, the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association, we have been um, talking to a number of other groups that are starting to form throughout the province that are seeing the exact same things happening in their downtown cores. Uh, The issues of random violence, the issues of um, constant uh, theft, um, the rampant... um, uh, r- rampant, rampant, um, violent crime, petty crime, um, people prowling on people's property, um, uh, open air drug use—you name it. It's it's all the same. I, I would say that Nanaimo right now is particularly um, akin to what's going on in Vancouver because of um, how how uh, close close it is. Um, it's the the nearest nearest downtown to to Vancouver's downtown uh by way of ferry and um my understanding too is that there's a fair amount of of traffic that that uh people that come come and go uh, from the downtown east side to downtown Nanaimo and vice versa.
1: I know when I was in MLA, there was a lot of talk about temporary housing going up in Nanaimo, uh, the complaint being that there wasn't enough wraparound services, even though this housing was, uh, this modular housing was put up. Uh, has that gotten better? Is it the same challenges where you have housing, but sometimes the wraparound services aren't there, or maybe perhaps the the, uh, the, the demand may, may be very high? Give me a sense of the housing challenges there for some of these individuals. Yeah.
3: I mean, it's real. The, the, the wraparound services that you speak of, I, you know, I I have to make sure we're talking about the same thing in terms of what those entail, but yes, there, the wraparound services, um, as far as uh, trauma care, uh, you know, access to treatment and recovery for addiction, um, social services to help people get back on their feet after, after uh, being incarcerated, you know, those, those, Social services are are really not um, being utilized or being funded nearly to the extent that they should be, and instead we're seeing um, you know these temporary band-aid fixes, right? You know we have we have um, you know enhanced harm reduction, we have safer supply. We're talking about we're talking about you know temporary housing, emergency shelters, um, you know, but these are these are. Only band aid fixes. They don't address the the root issues. Um, uh, and similar to in Vancouver, we have a a, a, a very dire situation um, in downtown Nanaimo uh, when it comes to uh, people who need a lot of support for for mental health and addictions. Um, and and the, the 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 way that these um, this suffering kind of manifests itself in terms of social disorder. Um, we we need a lot of
1: help. The Do people feel safe walking in your community, in and around your community in the downtown core?
3: Um, I would say that, you know, downtown Nanaimo is a beautiful place. And so I don't want to, um, you know, make it seem as though people just avoid it altogether because no, people go downtown, they do business there. We, we uh almost um defiantly uh you know refuse to be intimidated by these social disorder forces but there is that feeling of of insecurity and that constant fear of of you know pot- potentially being involved in one of these uh, random acts of violence or being you know uh, um accosted and 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 um uh, robbed or, or injured um just going about your day day to day, like there are a number of people all day, every day who are who you know are not in their right minds. And yeah so
1: yeah. M- my question to you w- w- was uh, and I could say the same thing about downtown Vancouver beautiful area lots of great things to do but there is that underlying challenge that is still there that something may occur uh, you have uh, you know many women who've lived downtown for many many years but do not feel safe going out in the evening and they love downtown they love the culture everything else that comes with it and lots of great things but that underlying issue of um, security the ability to do your run your business in some cases in downtown town uh, is is an issue. It's one of the reasons the last municipal election, uh, you had a sea change in that, because at least one party was viewed as at least trying to address some of those issues. In your case, uh, I know um, your mayor, Leonard Crowe, compassionate guy, uh, he's got a good head on his shoulders there. Uh, what needs to happen in your mind? Is it a case of just... You know, the tougher bail conditions, the federal government, the provincial government have to be tougher. What is it? what do you what would you and your citizens like to see so we don't repeat what we had what happened on Sunday?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I'll be the first to to say that, you know, when I first started in the to the uh, public safety advocacy realm, you know i I was after the mayor and council quite strongly, um, mm-hmm. feeling like it was a lot of, you know, uh, uh, local issues, and as that continued, and as sort of I, you know, kind of uncovered more and more about what was going on, I really, you know, I've, my mind has been is is changing, and so is that of the of the people of Nanaimo. That we really see this as as provincial level issues first and foremost, mm-hmm. and and a federal issue when it comes to issues like bail reform. But on the provincial. Level, we we really think that um, that the province, you know, in terms of policy change and but also action. I mean, we have we have um, you know these big announcements that have come out from the budget saying that there's going to be lots more money for for uh, mental health care and addiction recovery and treatment beds and all this. And you know, this this needed to happen. You know, last like four years ago, last year, yesterday, like you know, we're we are. We have to now make up for a lot of lost ground. And I can't really overstate how big of a crisis this is for, for all of BC. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just talk to you know, groups like ours, or even just the citizens that live and do business and, and their daily lives in downtowns so of just about every small, medium, and large city in this province. We're all experiencing the same thing, and it is is not going in the right direction right
1: now. Mm -hmm. Colin, I really want to thank you for your time today. Uh, I know there's a lot your community has been dealing with, and and even more so this weekend after um, the um, gunshot wound to uh, one of your fellow citizens uh, as well. I really appreciate you making time for us and, and your thoughtful comments as well. Thanks a lot. Great. Thank you very much.